You're listening to Christianity 101, a Sunday school series taught by the elders and deacons of Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. On November 8th, 1994, uh, Pastor Scott Willis and his wife Janet were driving to northern Wisconsin on I-94. Along with them were six of their nine children. As they were driving, a truck in front of them, uh, a taillight assembly, fell off of the truck, bounced along the road. Pastor Scott attempted to avoid it and instead hit the piece of shrapnel head-on, ruptured their gas tank, and their van burst into flames. It burst into flames and immediately Pastor Scott and his wife were able to exit the vehicle. They were able to pull their 13-year-old out of the vehicle, but ultimately five of those six children burned in that vehicle. And then hours later, their 13-year-old, while he struggled in the hospital, he passed away as well. So here we are, a pastor and his wife, having just gone through an intense tragedy. They just lost six of their nine children, who ultimately burned alive. Uh, now they're sitting and wondering what just happened. In just literally minutes, they just lost a tremendous amount of their children. So a situation like this, it poses the question, how can we believe in a God who created such a messed up world as this? That question is often asked by so many people, how can we believe in a God who created such a messed up world as this? So we're going to try to attempt to answer that question today um, by going through what God has given us here. Mark Twain, he attempted to answer the question of what's mankind? So fortunately, we know that mankind is a bit more than just an offensive group of bacteria that Mark Twain said. We know that mankind's a bit more than just um, more than a, a monkey, really. We know that mankind is ultimately God's image. In Psalm 8, the psalmist tells us, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Now God, it says, it says he created us a little lower the angel, than the angels. He goes on later in Genesis to express the rule and dominion that we as mankind have over the earth. Now, the psalmist here, when he talks about gazing up at the heavens and wondering what mankind is, uh, I, can, I can relate to this. One of my favorite places in the world to go is up to Algonquin Park. And when you're up in the middle of nowhere, you're surrounded by nature, you're surrounded by water, by trees, um, and especially when it's nighttime. Here I can picture the psalmist probably walking at nighttime, looking up the moon, the stars, and thinking to himself, what is man? Well, being out in the middle of nowhere, like Algonquin Park, you can paddle out in the middle of a lake at night, nothing around, no sound, no light, no anything, and you gaze up at the sky and see the thousands of stars around you, and you think to yourself, what an amazing God that we have. So it's in places like this 
that you feel, you definitely feel the power of God. So I can relate to what the psalmist is saying. What is man when he's looking around at creation? Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So very specifically, God tells us that we are the image of God. Mankind is the image of God. So knowing that mankind is the image of God, this should cause a very deep love and respect that we should have for one another. Um, And it's kind of a rabbit trail, but knowing that each one of us is the image of God, when we look at somebody else, that ought to cause love and respect immediately because we're looking at images of God all around us. So we're to maintain God's good order of love, righteousness, the attributes attributes that he ultimately showed in Scripture. We're, We're created to display those attributes from God. In Romans chapter 1, uh, I'll read, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So, great, we know from Scripture that we are the image of God. But what about everyone else across the world who doesn't have access to Scripture, who refuses to read Scripture? Well, fortunately, God tells us that mankind's without excuse. We can look around us and we see, we see that we are created ultimately by a, by a greater being, by a creator, and that we are without excuse. Adam, as the head of humanity, had a huge responsibility to maintain the image of God and exercise royal dominion in, in light of, of what God's created him to do. Well, we move on to mankind's failure. So, we see right from the beginning that Adam and Eve, they allowed the serpent to come into the garden And instead of pushing him out right away, um, they let him start talking to them. And through the talking to them, we find ultimately what happened happened after the failure and what happens now today. And it was interesting, as I'm reading through this part of the story uh, in, in the Garden of Eden, it is exactly the same thing that Satan does to us today. So we read... At the beginning of time, what Satan's doing, and now, today, we see him doing exactly the same thing, and this is it. So we see Satan come into the garden, and he just starts talking to Eve. So immediately we see this wickedness, this looming wickedness, come into the garden, and Adam and Eve allow Satan to just kind of talk to them, right? And what do we see Satan do? He can only work with the good word and deeds of God, and it ultimately corrupts it. So he begins with just enough of God's word to manipulate it. And we see that, we see that with Jesus Christ in the wilderness, right? 
Satan used scripture over and over and over again to try to tempt Jesus Christ. So he takes just a little bit of God's word and then attempts to corrupt it. Today, we're bombarded with culture of advertising that promotes self-fulfillment, self-realization, instant gratification. It's, and it's the same thing that Satan did then, what he's doing now. And I'll read from Genesis 3, the first six verses. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God had said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So I'm going to stop right here. I'm going to rabbit trail again. Because when I first read this, I never realized um, that it seems that apparent that Adam was present at this time. I always pictured him kind of off in the distance doing his thing, and Eve approached him later. Adam, it appears, was right next to Eve when all this happened. And what does that tell us as men? We can't be passive. We're bombarded. Our families, our wives are bombarded every single day with temptation, um, being pulled in directions they shouldn't be. Um, we got to step it up and be leaders. we got to protect our family, protect our wives. Anyway, um, mankind ultimately wanted to see, control, and master, and determine truth for themselves. So ultimately, the desire was for autonomy. And that's what they wanted after seeing what Satan was offering them. Um, the result of this was inevitable shame. Genesis 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So we see immediate shame immediate realization from Adam and Eve on their, on their sinfulness, on their sinful state. So they went from an, a state of perfection where they're literally walking with Christ in the garden every day to now they're shamed. They feel shamed when they hear or see Christ. That brings us to mankind's demise. So we see a very shameful response to God's glory. And we see evidence of this all over Scripture. I'll read three different accounts. In Exodus, uh, when, when God was giving Moses the Ten Commandments, and the, all the people are witnessing the thunder, the lightning coming from Mount Sinai, this is what the Israelites said to Moses. You speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. They feel this shame or this, this fear when, when, they, when they hear of God. In Isaiah, um, Isaiah had a vision, and 
From his vision, he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then again, after Simon Peter witnessed um, all the fish coming from him casting his nets on the other side, he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So we see this response all over scripture of basically shame or fear of, of Christ. Pain and suffering in Genesis 3 are illustrated uh, right after Adam and Eve committed their first sin. And this is illustrated through, pain, through the pain through childbirth and suffering through vain labor. So right away we see this now commencement of pain and suffering. And I have a story about this. Um, this week, um, I came from work. It was the Monday or Tuesday, I think. And um, I sit down on the couch as a great husband to listen to my wife about her day and how, how hard it was that she, that she had raising the kids and doing all she the things that she did. I know, I know. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, trying to bring myself points here. So I sit down and she says, she says, Jay, I'm, I've been reduced to one letter of the alphabet. <laughs> she says, Jay, you have no idea how hard and how exhausting it is to keep Lachlan alive. <laughs> wow. Okay. So we see right away that there's this pain, this, this suffering, this agony, this exhaustion that we now feel. And actually, she goes on to say, he, he'll open the, he opens the oven, he pulls out the oven grates, climbs on top of them to get on top of the stove so he can reach the cabinets above. It's exhausting. Anyways, um, we see this, this, this pain, this suffering, this exhaustion. Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. So we see the result, the demise, is through one man, sin enter the world. Now we have this commencement of sin, this commencement of evil, this origin of evil. Matthew 15, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. At this point, we've gone from a state of perfection, from a state of walking literally side by side with God, to now a place where it says the only thing that comes out of our heart are evil thoughts, are murders, are adulterers, fornications, thefts, lying, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. We have taken a big leap from where we started to now where we are. Let's move on. Mankind's bondage. Ultimately, humanity has become a slave of sin and death. So, now today, what does this have to do with with us now? We are ultimately held in bondage to our sinful desires, to our lust of the eyes, to our lust of the flesh, to the pride of life. Romans 3 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped 
and all the world may become guilty before God. So, Romans says, guilty before God. So, again, a state of perfection to a place now we are guilty before God. We're in bondage to our own sin, to our own lusts. Psalm 51 says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. You see, we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And immediately from, we see the, this inherent rebellion that we now have against God. We need a divine rescue. I mean, from, from this, now if we bring it to today, what are we doing now in spite of this bondage? We use things to cover up. We put facades up to cover up what is really the deep down corruption that we ultimately have. We use religion to cover up our sinful condition. We project a God that wants happiness and success and prosperity for all of his children. And we're so proud of our pretentiously high morals that we ignore God's wrath ultimately against us. You see, we've come to a place where our present apathy about our own sinful condition, it keeps us from the freedom that Christ has to offer us. I grew up doing a lot of landscaping. Um, I spent a lot of years doing this. And one particular time, um, my boss, he had given me a job to do. So he said, take a truck, take a trailer, go out to, it was this garden site that we had, and it was a relatively large garden that he said, um, I want you to weed the garden and mulch it. Okay, perfect, easy thing to do. Go out to the garden. It was probably, I don't know, 20 by 30 feet or so. And I look at it. It's strewn with weeds, completely overtaken. So I walk through the garden, pull up some of the big weeds, throw mulch on top of it, rake it out. Looks great. Looks beautiful. Perfect. I was pretty proud of myself. So I drove away, looking at the garden, thinking, this looks pretty good. I drove by one week later, it looked exactly the same. So this mulch covered up the garden, right? It looked fantastic. And in a short period of time, those weeds that were underneath all that mulch, it came out. It's the same with us, right? We use so many things to cover up the sin that is within us. It doesn't stay hidden forever. It comes out ultimately. And that's what we're doing every single day. We put up these facades to cover up our sin. We're ultimately in bondage. Our friend Mal- Malcolm, he said, uh, he said this about depravity. The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. What he's saying is this ultimate depravity, this total depravity, he said total depravity. This, this corruption of man is that is, it's so obvious, it's so empirically obvious, but we're resisting it every day. We're trying Just to. Just a question. Justin. Hmm. 
that we are denying. We're de- denying the fact that we are corrupt. This brings us to a very depressing state. Our corruption or our total depravity. So, depravity, what does it actually mean? Depravity comes from the Latin word pravis, which means crooked or perverse. So, like we said earlier, Satan takes God's word, he takes the good things from God, and he perverts them. He corrupts them. He manipulates them. So what we, what's happened to us is we've come to a state of total depravity. Everything about us is complete corruption. In Isaiah, we see, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. So I looked up, actually, what's, what's meant by filthy rags? And I'll relay to you that they are putrid. You can go home and look up what that means, but when, there's, when he says all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, they are abhorrent, putrid. And this isn't just you know, your dirty towels at home. This is completely worse. What Any good that we think we do is completely abhorrent. There's absolutely nothing good that we can do, and even the good that we think we do is completely putrid. Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So any good that we think we do is putrid, and then even our motivations and desires are deceitful right from the beginning. We can't win no matter what. Everything we do is completely abhorrent. In Romans, you can hear Paul's frustration when he talks about what he's trying to do. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. And what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. What's Paul saying? He's saying, what I'm supposed to do, I can't. And what I'm not supposed to do, I keep doing. He's so frustrated. We have come to a state where right from the beginning, our innate nature is deceitful, is putrid, is abhorrent. There's nothing good that we can do. So where does this leave us now? I mean, it seems pretty depressing, right? We've gone from a state of perfection to now a state of just putridness and a state of such unrighteousness that there's nothing we can do to ever have that relationship with Christ again that was initial in the beginning. Fortunately, there's a redemption story to all this. So Genesis 3 again, after we see Adam and Eve mess up completely, in fact, not just mess up, but basically damn the entire human race, we see right at the end of Genesis the announcement of the gospel. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, 
and you shall bruise his heel. God promised to crush the serpent. He promised that there would be an eternal hope. This is the first mention of the gospel. Mankind can have freedom, and there is hope for an eternal salvation. We are truly free when we fully commit ourselves to Christ. Now, for many years, I always heard the term, we're slaves to our sin, and we're in bondage to our sin, and we're, we can have freedom through Christ. And that, I always thought, was very cliche, until a couple of years ago, a pastor preached a sermon, and I'm not sure what he said. I'm initially slow to begin with, but he said something about being free through Christ from our sin, and it clicked all of a sudden. I got it. The light bulb went on, and I finally understood what it meant. So here we are. We're in a place where we are complete slaves to our sin, to our lust. I mean, we're controlled. What does it mean to be a slave? We are controlled by our innate lusts, our innate pride, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We are completely controlled by them. And it is only through Christ that we can be free from those methods of bondage. We're truly free when we commit ourselves to Christ. In John chapter 1, John expresses what he saw. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now, this is, uh, it seems almost like a fitting time uh, with Christmas coming right around the corner that we hear that phrase all the time in Handel's Messiah. Um, Our church growing up, we, we put on Handel's Messiah um, every year. And so when I hear that, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away this in the world, it just reminds me of, of the Messiah and of Christmas. Um, but the redeeming Lamb is what John is stressing that we understand. We can have freedom. There is hope for eternal salvation. So I thought to myself, how do I illustrate this point that apart from Christ, that we are, we're nothing? So I brought with me something that is completely non-functional. So don't worry about it. So most of you guys probably know what that is. And you might think to yourself, oh my goodness, where did he get that? And I respond, don't be ridiculous. I got it from my car trunk. I'm American. I asked Pastor if I could borrow his from his car trunk, and he said no. <laughs> so I had to bring my own. Anyway, most of you guys would probably look at this and say, that's a gun. And you're kind of almost right. Actually, you're completely wrong. It's not. Legally, by definition, it's not at all. And this is why. I took out the bolt carriage assembly that has the firing pin inside of it. So legally... It's just a few dollars of plastic and metal and a bit of glass. So what's the point? The point is that this looks like a gun. It probably smells like a gun a bit. It feels like a gun. It's not a gun at all. 
And the same is for us, is that we strive and strive and strive and strive and strive to look like this person that we're, that we're initially created to be. We're trying to be the Christian that we're supposed to be, and we're striving to be this, this image of perfection. But we're not. Apart from Christ, we're nothing. Absolutely nothing at all. Apart from Christ, I mean, we can't have any freedom. We strive to put on this facade of perfection, strive to put on this facade that we have everything going great in our lives. We see it all over the place. I mean, could you imagine if there was Mm -hmm. actually a platform that one could use where you could highlight every high point in your life and put it up for the world to see? Could you imagine that? What if we were able to put up every highlight of our life and broadcast it to the world? We do that all the time. And like this, we strive to look the part, but we're not. Apart from Christ, we're nothing at all. So let's revisit the question that's often asked, how can we believe in a God who made such a messed up world as this? You see, from the beginning, we saw that God created a world of perfection. He created mankind in a state of perfection. It was mankind that decided to mess it up. You see, we, we have this desire for self-truth, for, for autonomy, and we push God outside of that. We wanted nothing to do with, God, with what God had originally told us to do. So the choice to believe in God, despite the messed up world that we're in, despite the mess that mankind's made, it's the only way to achieve freedom. Yes, we live in a messed up world. Mankind messed it up. But the belief in God is the only way that we can achieve bondage from our sin. Everybody, every single one of us, every single person born is born into a bondage of sin and destruction. It's only through the full commitment to Christ that we can achieve freedom from that. So I I really urge you to take a look at your life. And yes, we call ourselves Christians. But every single day, when we're bombarded with with, the own, with our own destruction, with our own methods of bondage, think to where we started from and to where we are now. And God provides us a way out, right? He, he, he provides us freedom from our sin every single day. And yes, we're going to experience temptation. Yes, we are going to fail at times. But it's God that ultimately wants us back to him. He wants us to have freedom from the sins that enslave us.